You know, there were different views of him. You know, yeah. some people didn't understand what he was there and why a kind of ageing white man is there living this weird life. And on the other hand, there were people who, you know, were intrigued by that and supportive of that and admiring of that and amazed by it. Hi, and welcome to episode 85 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. My name's Maria Stolger, and I'm bringing you a double episode today about one of Australia's most famous and intriguing artists of the 20th century, Ian Fairweather. The reason I'm making these episodes is that I came across a recently published book called Ian Fairweather, A Life in Letters, which was co-edited by today's guest Claire Roberts and cultural historian John Thompson. It's published by Text Publishing. Claire Roberts is an art historian, curator and associate professor of art at the University of Melbourne, specialising in modern and contemporary Chinese art and the cultural flows between Australia and Asia. And it was the author Murray Bale who suggested Claire Roberts write this book. He had written a monograph on Fairweather and had already located many letters. But while that monograph focused on Fairweather's art, this book focuses more on the man himself. More letters were tracked down and in the end, 354 letters are included in this publication and the book was 12 years in the making. Fairweather lived an unusual life. Although he was born in Scotland in 1891, the last 20 years of his life he lived on Queensland's Bribie Island in a hut he made himself with a thatched roof and dirt floor. And there are great photos in the book of those huts. We also talk about the event that is probably why I got interested in Fairweather in the first place, the famous raft story where Fairweather sailed off into the open sea from Darwin, heading for Portuguese Timor on a train triangular raft he built himself and which was not much bigger than he was. What happened next was incredible. He's without a doubt one of Australia's most important artists, with his works held in almost every state and national institution, as well as the Tate in London and other international museums. And in the next episode, I'll be talking with artist Anne Thompson, who had actually met Fairweather on several occasions. She brings him to life and reinforces many of the observations Claire makes in this episode. He's been described as a recluse and a hermit, but as you will hear from Claire's careful consideration of his life, it's a little more complicated than that. Well, let's start with, um, I, he has very interesting history. He wasn't born in Australia, obviously. He was he was born in Scotland. Mm. And uh, the first 10 years of his life, he actually didn't really live with his parents. Mm. Can you tell me a bit about his childhood? Well, he was the youngest of nine children and, yeah, you're right, after his uh, birth, six months later, his parents went back to India. So his father spent all of his working life really in India. Um, he was a medico, he was uh, a surgeon. Um, his mother had been born in India and she was the daughter of the Surgeon General in India. So the family has a long history of service to the empire through India. Well, he actually refers, he says in some letters that he regards that as his home. Yeah. In a, way. a number of his siblings were, were born in India. I mean, he and a number of others were born in Scotland, I guess, as his mother, you know, became older, you know, nine children. It's kind of a good effort. <laughs> you know, maybe there was a concern, you know, that um, there might be better care or I don't know yeah. what the considerations well, he was the were. Youngest, wasn't he? And he was the youngest. So um, I guess that's partly why he was born in Scotland rather than India. Mm. So um, 
I mean, it was not that he was without family, and I think this is a, was a more common thing then when, you know, when travel was uh, more difficult. You know, people were travelling by ship then, so it was not easy to come and go. So a decision was made for him and also a couple of his other younger siblings to be looked after by his father's unmarried sisters, mm. so maiden aunts, who were very, you know, very old, you know, um, Fairweather's father was an old man by the time he was born. He was already a, an old father at the yeah, time his first child was born. Wasn't he? I think, yeah. yeah. So, um, so he kind of in his letters he talks about having an aversion to old age from an early point in his childhood. So, you know, I think he did suffer from a sense of abandonment from his mother, and then he was just suddenly in this other you know it was a family context he wasn't totally abandoned but and he was there mm. with some of his siblings but it was a a strange childhood and mm. one gets the sense that fairweather was quite a sensitive you know child and so i guess you know some children might have coped with the experience better than he perhaps did but you know i think you see ongoing resonances in his artwork you know if we think about his preoccupation you know, with the, you know, mother and child imagery, for example, mm. you know, I think we can trace that back, you know, to some early childhood experiences. Yeah. So it was only after his father finally retired from his post-retirement job, he then finally came home. And so that was, you know, Fairweather was 11 yeah. and the family moved to Jersey, the island of Jersey, where they, you know, had a fairly substantial, quite grand home. And what was life like on, on that island? Um, I visited Jersey um, a couple of times oh, on right. the trail of Fairweather and I wanted to get a sense of what it was like. Um, you know, it's very beautiful. Um, you know, so there are beaches and, mm. you know, there are Martello Towers, there are old forts, there are old battlements. Mm. So I think it was a great time for a young person and he was, you know, um, 11 kind of at that stage. You know, apparently he spent a lot of time riding his bike around the island. He would, you know, sometimes stay overnight in some of the historic structures, you know, which would be cut off from the land by the by the rising tide. You know, so that sense of adventure and, mm. you know, connection with the natural world. You know, he loved shells. He loved, you know, the sea. He loved kind of rock pools and... Mm. Um, you know, he loved animals. He kind of kept a lot of animals, you know, so he developed, you know, he, I think it was very important. And I think that sense of it being an island, you know, he's also, was also became deeply embedded in his consciousness, mm, you know, it does pop his up love of islands. Yeah. I mean, he talks throughout the book, you know, there are constant references to islands and wanting to kind of find an island, find a you know, which he did on Bribey Island, yeah. but there were many earlier islands where he lived and, you know. He had a kind of a romantic sort of attachment mm. to that yeah. idea, I think. Yeah. Um, well, let's go, let's skip a bit forward to uh, a very formative time in, in Fairweather's life, uh, which was World War I. Um, mm. And he served uh, as a second lieutenant in the, in the war. Mm. Can you tell me a bit about his experience over mm. that time? I guess given that he came from a family where, you know, his elder brother was in the military, his father kind of, you know, was seconded to the military or, you know, worked for the military as a surgeon, you know, so there was a sense, I think, he grew up in a family where there was an expect expectation that, um, you know, boys would serve, you know, in the case of war. And so, 
Fairweather must have been one of the most unlikely potential officers. Mm. Um, Temperamentally, you mean? Well, I, I think so. Um, you know, his his siblings or his, his niece, one of his nieces, um, after his service, you know, said that they they felt that he was ill-suited to war. Um, so they, they knew him, you know, mm. uh, very well. But nonetheless, he had a determination, I guess, to fulfil you know, the wishes of his father, I guess, and mother. And so um, after some coaching, he then was accepted and served. And, you know, he was in the Cheshire Regiment and that regiment was involved in the, you know, one of the first full-on battles of the First World War. Mm. And so he kind of makes light of it in his letters and, you know, recalls some of the detail of the events later on. When I say makes light of it, he just he doesn't go into the you know great detail. He gives an account of what happened, mm. but based on you, you mean the battle itself, the actual battle, mm. and then being being um, they were you know they surrendered, they they were taken pris- prisoner uh, because it was kind of hopeless, mm. and so then he you know spent years you know four years kind of as a POW in, in various camps in in Germany and made numerous escape attempts, all of them unsuccessful. So. Normally what happened was that you would go into a more severe kind of environment, you know, after each escape attempt. Uh, so, so it was basically the whole war, he was a prisoner of war. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, it was a serious offensive that he was involved with. So serious kind of shelling, you know, gunfire. Mm. You know, so I think that was quite a traumatic um, event. Mm. So I think looking back on Fairweather's life and, you know, the peculiarities of his temperament and the decisions that he made, you know, to, um, you know, in a way live life on his own terms, pursue art, uh, engage kind of with people but at arm's length and, you know, so there was certainly a sense of sociability but it was something that he could control, that idea mm. of maintaining control kind of, of of his destiny and also the whenever he encounters anything that's deeply troubling and disturbing, you know, like the theft of his diaries or, um, you know, um, other... Or, or bushfires or something, he flees, you know, that so that mm. his continually kind of seeking to escape kind of adverse situations. So I think that is a, uh, you know, that was a learned uh, defence, self-defence kind of mechanism. Yeah. You know, so I think the impact, the psychological and emotional, you know, impact of those, you know, his war service and then his period as a POW, um, you know, needs further examination. I think there's it, it plays a much larger role in his formation as a kind of adult and as an artist than, yeah. you know, we've previously understood to be the case. Yeah. So after that period, he then actually started his art education mm. at the Slade School in London. And uh, what sort of school was that? What sort of um, tuition would have he received? Well, um, the Slade is a very important art school. His professor was um, Henry Tonks, uh, who was also a surgeon. He served in the war and himself kind of did these amazing portraits. Uh, he was commissioned by the British government, I guess, or the military, to create kind of records of people, you know, who, who had been affected by war. So injured, you injured, mean? Injured, yeah. Right. Physically disfigured and, yeah, injured. 
So I think there was, you know, I, you know, and and Tonks, in the biography of Tonks, there are a number of mentions of Fairweather. So Fairweather was, and Tonks must have taught many students uh, over, you know, the period of his kind of uh, uh, tenure at the Slade. But you know, it indicates that Fairweather, you know, there was a, a connection, mm. you know, between mm. you know the professor and the student. Mm. And that he was recognised as someone of having as having some you know special kind of talent, um, you know, and sensitivity. So I think that connection with the military and his you know and being him being a surgeon, you know, there was a there was a bond that that developed. So, look, um, Tonks, uh, you know, he's a classic. You know, he received a classical training, you know, in figure painting. Yeah. So there are uh, we can see um, in the collection of the Queensland Art Gallery some of his early figure studies, mm. you know, in, in charcoal and, um, uh, you know, of male kind of torsos and yeah. and figures. Yeah. So, you know, he, he has really the best kind of classical training you could imagine, you know, as a figure painter. So that, you know, that's what he kind of was set yeah. up to do. Yeah. And it's interesting that he was also at the same time uh, learning Japanese at the University of London. Mm. Is, there, is there any clue as to why he was attracted to that? Basically, you know, Fairweather said that when he was in a POW camp, you know, he read about Japanese and Chinese art um, by uh, books, and he mentions um, Lafcadio Hearn and also Ernest uh, Fenelosa. So in a POW camp, I guess there are, you know, you're confined and um, there obviously were libraries, you know, and stocked with books, and so these are the some of the texts that Fairweather mentioned. Yeah, that's so amazing, that isn't opened it? up a kind of other world to him. Yeah, I mean, my feeling is also that um, his his sister Queenie, she lived in China. So my feeling is that there is a family connection as well. Mm. But you know, and the the reason we really know that he switched from Japanese to Chinese language is that. You know, he then ends up after his study and uh, a period of time kind of working as an artist, um, you know, not always kind of successfully. He then ends up, um, you know, in Canada. Um, he has a brother in Canada and so he ends up being a, uh, working a number of jobs. I just wanted to talk a bit about that period after... Uh, when he did start travelling, he went to Canada and then in the 30s and 40s he travelled a lot mm. and he travelled through China and Indonesia. Um, but it was a very... He was travelling in a very rough um, mm. way, very um, in a very unsettled sort of way. Was, it, was that always because of a lack of financial means? No, it's an interesting question. I think um, he was always very short of money and so I think that did determine you know, how he travelled to a large extent. But I think there was also a desire to kind of do things in his own way on his own terms mm. and experience those places uh, in a different way. That's my sense. I mean, you know, we can't disassociate Fairweather from his family background and colonialism um, and forces that were at work in the world and still are in the you know at work in the world but nonetheless i think he was actively kind of well, he was conscious of and working against that kind of inheritance and mm. uh legacy mm. um 
And certainly, you know, we see a great change in his artwork as a result of his travels in Asia. Um, You know, right from the time he leaves um, Canada, you know, he's pretty much you know, in Asia for and in the Southern Hemisphere, kind of moving towards the Southern Hemisphere. And he talks about this kind of trajectory. Um, and he finds great stimulation, as many artists have, in the subject matter, in cultures where he found himself. Um, and that provided, you know, great stimulation for his artistic practice. I want to take you to a pivotal time for... Um for Fairweather because uh, after he he travelled in China and Indonesia, he did finally end up in Australia. Mm. Um, And and that is very interesting as well to sort of hear how his first impressions of Australia. But I wanted to jump forward to 1952 Mm -hmm. um, when uh, he was in Darwin. Can you tell me about the story of Survivor, which which caught the attention of the media around the world? Mm. I guess the raft journey is the thing that most people uh, recall about Fairweather or, you know, they associate with Fairweather. I guess there are um, a number of things that have been happening in in Fairweather's life and one of the big things was that he, you know, he sent a huge roll of paintings to London, you know, much earlier. And over a number of years, he's trying to get information about what happened to them. You know, he's really obsessively wanting to find out what happened to those paintings. Mm. And so he, uh, so part of his reason to leave, as far as, you know, we can understand, is to begin the process of kind of establishing what happened, you know, or, you know, upset at, at, at what happened to, you know, the this destruction of those paintings. All oh, right. So what so, did so he was planning to just sail so, off? To... Look, we don't know um, exactly what his motivations are, but you know, this requires a deal of preparation. So, you know, he's creating this raft from things that he could find, you know, disused, um, you know, piece of tarpaulin, fuel containers, mm. you know, planks of wood. You know, he's referring to different books as well. You know, I think he's kind of inspired by Thor Heyerdahl's, you know, Kontiki kind of adventures and, right. um, you know, he sets off. And one of the theories is that he was actually setting off to Portuguese Timor to connect with someone who he'd met on his earlier travels, a pearl diver, and I guess from there slowly kind of make his way northwards. That's quite far. It was like 600 kilometres or something, wasn't yeah. it? So I mean, he it's, was, he's on know, a rudimentary raft. But he, yes, and he, I mean, he has a sense of the sea, I think mm. you'd say. I mean, mm. so he's not a complete novice. You know, he certainly had the confidence. I mean, it wasn't a total act of folly. It was a daring thing to do. Um, but I think, you know, once he is convinced to do something, he just kind of does it. So mm. he pushes off and and then, um, of course, the winds change and and he, he drifts and, you know, he's reported lost at sea and there's huge media coverage of this event. Mm. The RAAF are kind of called in. There are aircraft circling trying to find him. They don't spot him and eventually he washes up or drifts and lands on Roti, the island of Roti, which is under Indonesian control. He has no papers. He's arrested as an illegal immigrant and has a very harrowing time. Mm. But, you know, he's been he's been at sea for many days. Um, he doesn't he didn't travel with much food and water. And um, so he arrived in very bad shape. I mean, he, you know, it's extraordinary 
it's an extraordinary feat of survival you know which I think just goes to show how kind of tough he he was physically you know that he was kind of a, a strong kind of person and and also had a strong resolve to yeah, kind of right. live, yeah. you know, that he survived. Yeah. Um, so there are a couple of drawings, you know, we include one in the letter which Murray Bale also included in his book of him on the raft and um, at night. And, you know, so I think he uh, he certainly would have been in a, um, a strange kind of physical and emotional state, hallucinating and mm. um, really not very well by the time he arrived. So, you know, that was a life-transforming kind of moment, you know, another of the life-transforming moments. Um, But then, of course, he refused to come back to Australia. The RAF wanted to fly him back to Australia because that was kind of where he had been living, but he refused and so um, he ended up kind of back in in the the UK and then had to do hard labour to kind of earn, you know, the money to repay his his flight. But um, he realised that he couldn't, um, you know, that the UK had changed so much and that there was, you know, no real place for him. And so he he returns to Australia. Oh, okay. So it wasn't a yearning to return to Australia, really. It was not. Well, in the end, it was a pragmatism. I mean, he's got a hut that he abandoned. You know, he's got a viable life there. And, And the other thing is that, you know, he has this relationship with Macquarie Galleries. You know, he knew that he had already, you know, he could translate the paintings into money and survive. Yeah. In London, he would have to have start, he would have to start all over again. And who? You know, he's been away for so long, he has no contacts. The whole art world's moved on, you know, impossible. So I think it was a yearning to be back there, but the practical reality was that he couldn't easily make it work and he didn't want to be beholden to anyone. I mean, he's a, he was a very difficult person to help. He didn't, he didn't want to have to owe anyone anything. He wanted to be able to repay. So he was very principled in that manner. Yeah. Well, can we talk about, um, uh, the place that he spent the last 20 years of his life, Mm. which is Bribey Island, which is an island, um, uh, not far from Brisbane, actually, about an hour and a half north of Brisbane. What was it about Bribey Island that appealed to him? I guess that it was a an island. Um, maybe it was its proximity in a way to Brisbane. You know, he'd spent quite a bit of time going up and down the coast. Um, he'd, you know, he hated Fremantle when he arrived there. Um, he didn't like. Bit, I think it was it was sort of a deserted sort of place. He felt it deserted and uh, couldn't. <laughs> a bit too quiet. Very quiet. Especially after China and Indonesia, I could imagine it would be. Um, he sort of complained about the pubs being closed. Yeah. <laughs> And Salvation Army bands and or whether that was Melbourne, I can't remember. But, you know, and, and Melbourne, he also has a very strong support base in Melbourne. You know, so I think he, he always he knows that um, there were very good artist kind of friends there, but he didn't feel as though he could thrive in Melbourne, you know, and maybe he felt he couldn't survive there. You know, that he needed to live on his own terms and find, you know, he was always finding places where he could live without rent, paying rent. Mm. Although, you know, he did pay peppercorn rents, you know, for the theatre in Sandgate and um, things. But, you know, he had to find a place that he could afford. But he almost all, I got the impression from the letters that he almost preferred to be living in nature rather than living in a a conventional home or a building or 
Well, certainly in, I mean, he found it very stimulating living in China and the Philippines and, I mean, in Bali, um, uh, in, you know, communities in those places. You know, he found that very stimulating artistically. But maybe in a place like Australia, um, he he decided that he needed to be a part. Mm. Um, I don't know, to retain kind of the fantasy to be able to create a to inhabit a creative space that he was more in control of. Mm. Um, certainly he was. He loved the environment. You know, he's a very early environmentalist um, and that's an interesting, you know, thing that comes through in the letters. But um, chance plays a very important part in Fairweather's life and he trusts that chance, that things happen for a reason. So he just happened upon Bribey Island, mm. you know, on one kind of occasion earlier, and he remembered that. Mm. And so then comes back to explore it and pitches his tent and then that's it. He's there for 20 years. Yeah, and he built a series of huts, didn't he? A series of huts. Look, he built, he started building huts um, in the Philippines, really. I mean, again, out of need. Yeah. Um, By hand himself. Yeah, just using, you know, cutting down trees and using, you know, local grasses to, you know, create a thatched roof. And in the book we've got included a number of drawings. You know, I think um, in another life or had life turned out differently, you know, he might have been an architect, Mm. you know. He's very interested in space and, and, you know, was very keen to create environments, you know, the perfect studio. and, And so he created a succession of these, you know, in order to, you know, again, live on his own terms in these places that he's found. But, you know, so often in, in the Philippines, you know, he was moved on. You know, I mean, you know, the, these are not always places where he can sustain a life. But in, in Bribey, you know, he establishes quite a curious kind of relationship with the local community. You know, people are always dropping in and curious and disturbing his peace. But at the same time, you know, there's a there's a there's a larger sense, I think, in the community that... You know, there is someone quite special kind of in their midst and so, you know, there were different views of him. You yeah. know, some people didn't understand what he was there and why a kind of ageing white man is there living this weird life. And on the other hand, there were people who, you know, were intrigued by that and supportive of that and admiring of that and amazed by it. Especially other artists who often came to visit, like Margaret Ollie, Donald Friend, um, Patrick White visited mm. him. Um, That's right, a whole stream of um, artists and writers, Murray Bale himself as well. Yeah, of course. Went, yeah. Um, I think Anne Thompson. Well, Robert, Anne, Thompson. Anne Thompson was married to Robert Walker at That's the time. That's right. That's who right. took a lot of photographs. And, That's um, right. Actually, she mentioned that to me when I, when I interviewed her. So um, I think he must have been a bit of an enigma as well. I think people were curious to um, see him in the flesh and... Um, and I guess it was such a, well, it was such an extreme life. You know, he made extreme choices for his art. And so artists, I think, uh, uh, appreciate just what that entails. Mm. Well, know, there's to, no running water or electricity. No running no. water, no electricity. Um, you know, so I think there was, there was a real respect. Other artists have a great, had a great respect for him and also respect for his life, you know, his art. I think if he, if he wasn't a great artist or wasn't an interesting artist, um, there wouldn't have been that pilgrimage. But, you know, such a diversity of, of, of artists, you know, mm. went to visit him 
and um, you know, and and some developed kind of ongoing, you know, relationships. He you know was very close to uh, Roy Churcher. Mm. He was um, yeah, he had a very sociable and you know close relationship with Lawrence Dawes. Margaret Ollie was fantastic to him. Really mm. looked out for him. You know, helped the Macquarie Galleries ladies. You know, you know, work with council to build a kind of house with modern amenities, with electricity and running water. You know, mm-hmm. something that was only finally kind of connected. You know, he only had electricity and water. You know, in the last few years before he died. Yeah. And you know, he then he had this new house, which he was sort of pleased about, but. At the same time, he didn't feel he, you know, had a car poured concrete floor and stuff. Mm. He preferred the, you know, uh, you know, the dirt floor That's right. of his own house. Yeah. So it was a strange thing. Well, he didn't he didn't paint much then when he moved into that. He was quite elderly at that point. He was quite frail. Uh, the last years, he didn't paint that much at all. Mm. Well, there's sort of a contradiction in a way between his this idea of him being a recluse, but also having quite a bit of contact and also obviously through letters as well well part you know part of our um i guess aim uh, maybe that's too strong but anyway one of the interesting things that comes out of the book is um is is how social he was mm. but that his chosen mode of sociability was the letter and also reading um you know so I don't know. I think that word recluse is kind of a bit of a hackneyed kind of term and and not really totally applicable to mm. Fairweather. You know, it sets up a whole kind of image of, of the artist who's disconnected from the world and not concerned about the world. And that's not the case with Fairweather. You know, he, he was um, a regular... You know, he, he subscribed to all these magazines, you know, mm. the Atlantic Monthly you know, for a period, time for a period. He loved science fiction. You know, he subscribed to sci-fi magazines, you know, Galaxy. Yeah. You know, he he had a regular um, uh, source of books coming to him from the Bribey Island Library, you know. Mm. Um, so, you know, the postal network was amazing and the, and the, you know, you could, you know, be in touch with the world through writing and reading mm. and and certainly he kept himself informed about world events he also read the paper every day you know mm. he went down or almost, if not every day almost every day you know he his regular routine would be to go down to the local store and um, drink a bottle of milk and read the newspaper and yeah, you right. know there are some robert walker photographs um, of him sitting on his bench you know which was identified as fair with this kind of bench mm. you know so he was a he was a presence on Bribey Island. You know, he was a he was an identity. You know, one very common strand throughout the book is that he, you know, his disavowal of paintings that he yeah. he clearly painted, but he regarded as being by other people, and, and that's a very interesting and curious kind of situation that it persists even for some of his most famous you know, paintings like kind of monastery. Mm, um, but, and I know, think you mentioned also uh, earlier about um, the, the retrospective. I mean, at mm. the Queensland Art Gallery in 1965, he had a major retrospective of his work which and, uh, and several of those paintings he insisted that he mm. hadn't painted. And so I think this comes back to the, the artist's particular connection with the works at the time of their creation and then 
the artist's later encounter with those works and trying to reconnect with them. Mm. And in Fairweather's case, seeing them in a different, literally in a different light. You know, he's painting at night by kerosene lamp. Mm. Um, you know, th- they're paintings that are in a series. They're, you know, there's a narr- there are narrative threads that connect them, you know, the works that he's working on at that time. And presumably, well, not that that narrative thread is necessarily broken, but he's moved on and he's dealing with different concerns. So to go back in his mind to that moment of creative exploration and to try and see, you know, think about seeing those works under different light conditions or in print, Mm. you know, as the cover, Epiphany on the cover of Art in Australia, the inaugural issue in 1963. Mm. You know, I think this for an artist is part of, you know, the changing connection with artwork after after the fact and the intensity of that initial creative moment and how difficult that is, uh, particularly in Fairweather's case, to to re-establish mm. in a di- totally different environment. Mm. So I think, you know, that disavowal and distancing, I guess it's part of what kept him moving forward, you know, continually exploring new terrain artistically such that he, you know, when he's presented with something from 10 years or 20 years ago, that he can barely yes identify identify with it or yeah. is not really wanting to connect with it because yeah. as an artist he's he's kind of moving forward he's not yeah. it's our our interest as historians and yeah. later people who are interested in the formation of a life and an artistic oh. trajectory are curious about that journey but for an artist they're continually looking forward right. they don't look back yeah there's the, the greatest artists are like that aren't they mm. I want to talk about another significant um, aspect of his life and that is his interest in uh, Chinese language Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um, he, in fact, to the point where he was translating Mm. uh, texts, Chinese texts. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yes, well, I guess uh, that's my particular interest, having kind of studied Chinese language myself and, you know, one of my main areas of interest is, 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 is modern and contemporary Chinese art as well as artistic connections between Australia and Asia, uh, including China. So, I mean, Fairweather is a striking figure when we think about kind of contact with Asia and in particular China. You know, I can't really think of any other artist of stature who has um, spent, you know, such an extended kind of period in China and learnt the, then learnt the language and then gone on to translate and have published, um, uh, you know, a Chinese novel. Mm. Um, And The Drunken Buddha, which finally appeared in 1965, published by University of Queensland Press, that's one of a number of of translations that he carried out. So I'm interested in what the relationship is between that practice, which is a rather unusual practice for most artists, um, the relationship between that and his, you know, the evolution of his artistic practice. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting how he mentioned that, um, you know, how alternating between his visual art practice and his actual translation uh, helped him sort of get started with his visual art, you know, the painting. Yes. Um, well, in one a beautiful letter, he refers to using translation as a tool to kind of rev up and then cool down in painting. Um and so, I mean, we all know how difficult it is, those of us who've attempted art practice, you know, to get started, you know, the new day. How do you begin or 
Um, and so they're all, you know, I guess artists adopt different tactics in order to, to kickstart things. Exactly. And so for Fairweather, you know, clearly translation. And this, I guess, you know, it's, it was a creative space um, where he had agency. He felt confident enough to be able to work out, work out what the meanings of these mm-hmm. characters were mm-hmm. and create a, um, a sense of a narrative um, and so that so there was so the spaces between the words, you know, provided him with a lot of space to to think and 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 I think that this was a very helpful mm. process for his own kind of practice. Which, you know, if we look at his paintings, you know, they're layered and there are, you know, to, particularly in the later works, you know, there's a lot of use of black paint and conscious line and structuring kind of imagery, you know, I mean, he moved towards abstraction kind of, you know, and then, you know, in, you know, 60, around, you know, the early 60s and then had difficulty um, taking leave of abstraction and coming back to the real world. Um, I don't think he ever really thought of himself as an abstract artist, you know, his training as a figurative painter with that classical tradition, you know, it was always very grounded it's in, very in interesting. Well, that's right. And also it's interesting um, him talking about uh, the influence of sort of Eastern philosophies mm. with his process. Mm. And there was one letter in particular that I, I found really interesting. I think it might have been a letter to his nephew, I'm not sure, where he was talking about the idea, uh, Buddhist idea of suspended judgment, mm. Mm. where the mind is clear of thought but not awareness. And um, he had this lovely, lovely idea of, of, of running over rocks and that you can't stop at any rock. He, he really obviously thought through um, the nature of creativity. Yeah, I think there's a lot of profundity, you know, in, his, um, in the letters actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can get an insight into that, I guess, through his reading. You know, he was very interested in I guess you'd say the paranormal or you know in in the in the spiritual in the kind of paranormal mm-hmm. in cosmic events and he felt connected to them he trusted them yeah. and he you know he's very interested in Tibet you know he travels to the Himalayas he later realizes how close he was to Tibet that he you know can't believe how close he was that he didn't kind of make it you know, and Tibet, I guess, is, you know, it's a kind of um, connection, you know, in terms of his family, you know, or close to India and, right. you know, that whole zone that he was very interested in and mm. became more and more interested as a result of his travels, extensive travels. Mm. So that interest I mentioned earlier, his interest in chance and fate, and it's all connected to this mm. um, awareness of the, the, the spiritual, the you know, other dimensions, um, you know, beyond the physical world. And I guess, you know, his connection with the natural world also, you know, fits into that as well. Yeah, that's true. Mm. He was, but yeah, he, he often refers to, you know, the possums and the spiders and the birds. He would feed, um, feed the birds and um, other animals that came close to the hut. Well, they, you know, the, the birds and the animals and the reptiles and, I mean, they ended up being his closest companions. Mm. I mean, they were the... They, they they were the kind of living uh, beings who he interacted with That's kind right. of most closely yeah. and develops kind of affection for mm. and close association with. Well, you wonder whether... Actually, one thing we haven't touched on is um, 
is a constant reference to anxiety and depression. And I think a lot of anxiety sort of arose out of out of his um, out of all the media attention that he would get, and he often referred to that. Uh, how did he take that sort of attention? It's an interesting question. It's a complex one because, on the one hand, you know he his approach to write an article for the Bribey Star, you know, this local newspaper, to commemorate the opening of the bridge, which in a way, which he laments, he laments the opening of the bridge because it means the island is connected to the mainland and that forever changes the island mm. physically and conceptually kind yeah. of to him. But but yet, I mean, he's delighted that his, um, his writing is appearing in print for the first time mm. so that he uh, is able to speak on his own terms about himself and his, well, and that was about his connection to the island. You know, so there's a sense of pride and pleasure about being a public kind of figure. So there's that on the one hand, but then I, I guess as a result of the bridge opening, um, which he's been fearing for years in the lead up to that. After it does open, of course, that does change things. And and he's, you know, famous by then. He's yeah. called, referred to as Australia's greatest painter by an art critic. And, you know, there are news reports of p- people queuing up in Sydney to buy his work. He, You know, he's a real identity. You know, he's a, an unusual character. Um, and so lots of people call in on him. You know, people who are just curious, people who are just... I don't know, uh, some people who are respectful, some people who are disrespectful. Some, for some people it's this crazy old guy and, um, and, and children. I mean, all sorts of people kind of interfere with his mm. peace. And this is a cause of great anxiety for him. You know, it, all, it almost drives, drives him mad, you know. And I guess, I mean, in part that was, you know, a factor contributing to his attempts to escape in the 60s, 66, you know, two attempts to get back to the UK, um, but both unsuccessful. Um, So, look, he often kind of, um, you know, has this desire to exit himself kind of from situations, but then calms down and realises that, Mm. you know, there aren't so many options and so settles down again. Mm. He never really considered himself an Australian, did he? Um. I don't think there's any evidence kind of pr- that the letters provide, um, you know, to indicate that. We've claimed him. We've, <laughs> we've right. claimed Fairweather and his narrative. And yeah. I think that's been in, you know, his trajectory has been a southern trajectory. Mm. You know, I mean, many of our artists have gone north. Mm. So he's someone who we've respected for coming south and staying here and for painting the best works um, in of his life in Australia. So he's um, forever connected to Australia, but um, he never really... Well, he identified, you know, with the birds and the animals and his part of Bribie Island. You know, he made that home. And I think he really felt that that was home. Mm. But I don't know that he, he connected with, you know, Australia as a whole. Um, I guess it was part of the British Empire... You know, there's a, you know, there's a narrative kind of connection there. Um, I mean, really, where he wanted to be, and felt most comfortable spiritually and emotionally, I think, in the end, seems to have been Chelsea. You know, the area where he began his artistic life. Mm. 
uh, at the Slade. So whether that was a romantic kind of way of connecting back mm-hmm. to his earlier period. I mean, the later letters are very thoughtful and reflective, going back over early episodes of his life. You know, so, I mean, the book is quite satisfying to read, I think, from, or we structured it that way, to read from beginning to end, you know, mm-hmm. to trace the arc of his life, because, you know, there is a lot of reflection on earlier periods, including the war in the later letters. So, yeah, you know, I, it, I it, it, yeah. it comes together as a, as a totality, but... Mm-hmm. But then dipping in also kind of, you know, is satisfying and we recognise that people won't necessarily have the time to sit down and read it from cover to cover. But, you know, I think it's a, it's a, a poignant kind of life. Mm, well, I have um, totally enjoyed reading the book, Claire. And thank you so much for your time today to um, sort of shed more light on Ian Fairweather's life. No, well, thank you, Maria. It's great to find a kind of... Um, a considered reader and someone who has read the book from beginning to end. Uh, it's a great pleasure to know that there are people like you out there. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Claire Roberts. If you want to get your hands on the book, go to the website talkingwithpainters.com for a link to buy the book or else just Google Ian Fairweather, A Life in Letters and plenty of booksellers' websites will pop up. I've also put links on the website to many of the things we raised in the show as well as links to Fairweather's work on Australian gallery websites. If you enjoyed this, you are going to enjoy the next episode too where Anne Thompson talks about her memories of Fairweather. If you're looking for ways to support the podcast, the best thing you can do is go to iTunes and leave a rating and review. That's the place that counts the most because that seems to be how people can best find out about the podcast. So thanks for doing that if you do or if you have in the past. Also, the podcast is on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter where you can find out things like details of upcoming shows of past guests and there are lots of videos on there, some short ones that don't make it onto the YouTube channel that I just create for social media. There's also, of course, the YouTube channel uh, which is mainly short videos of artists in their studios um, and which you can find on YouTube and just a search Talking With Painters. And those videos are also on the website on each artist's page. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking With Painters. There are some fantastic photographs that have been taken by Robert Walker and others of Fairweather and his, um, his, his, in his home and in his studio. Uh, and, you know, you see that the total environment that he's created. You know, that's all been made by Fairweather. So in a way, kind of the the paintings, to my way of thinking, are, um, you know, inseparable from that studio environment. You know, there's such uh, an integrity about his practice and the environment in which he created um, to paint. 